This week, PG&E says Chapter 11 is the, quote, only viable option. ESL wins auction to buy Sears assets out of bankruptcy. iHeart settles with legacy notes parties. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lang, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. And I'm Connor Skelding. This week, Jason Sanjana and Ray Nagiat from Reorg's legal team talk with your co-host, Karen, about the dispute between McKinsey Recovery and Transformation Services and Jay Alex, the founder of Alex Partners. They talk about Jay Alex's campaign against McKinsey's disclosure practices in several restructurings that Reorg follows. Stay tuned for their interview. It's Sunday, January 20th. First things first, Angelo Thalassinos, Deputy Managing Editor for Reorg Americas and Senior Legal Analyst, joins us to discuss recent news on PG&E Corporation. Thanks, Connor. The developing PG&E Corporation restructuring, including its utility subsidiary Pacific Gas and Electric, is moving quickly. I'll get our listeners caught up on what happened last week, but for a more fulsome discussion, please join us on Wednesday, January 23rd at 2 p.m. Eastern, as our coverage team provides an overview of the company, the Chapter 11 timeline, and restructuring considerations, including regulatory and political overlays, in the latest installment of the Reorg webinar series. Now for last week. PG&E began the week by announcing its intention to file for Chapter 11 on or about January 29th in the Bankruptcy Court for the Northern District of California. The California utility said that its liabilities for the 2017 and 2018 wildfires could exceed $30 billion, and that the company expected to raise $5.5 billion in dip financing. The company disclosed cash and cash equivalents of about $1.5 billion, approximately $2 billion lower than the implied amounts following its November revolver draw. In a letter to retirees on Monday, PG&E's interim CEO, John Simon, said that the utility does, quote, not expect, end quote, any changes to the company's tax-qualified pension plan or to health or life insurance benefits. Simon replaced Geisha Williams, who stepped down as CEO over the prior weekend. On Thursday, PG&E shareholder Blue Mountain Capital wrote an open letter to the board arguing that the company is solvent and that Chapter 11 would be, quote, damaging, avoidable, and unnecessary, end quote. In its letter, Blue Mountain argues that wildfire liability claims can be settled at 35 cents to 57.5 cents on the dollar. As supporting evidence, Blue Mountain points to San Diego Gas and Electric settlement of claims tied to a 2007 fire and reports that an insurance company sold its subrogation rights tied to the 2017 wildfires. The fund manager added that a bankruptcy filing, quote, violates fiduciary duty, end quote, and requested that all documents be preserved. A PG&E spokesperson said in a statement to Reorg in response on Thursday that the board has determined that a Chapter 11 reorganization is the, quote, only viable option, end quote, for the company and would, quote, maximize the value of the enterprise for the benefit of all stakeholders, end quote. In other wildfire liability claims related news, U.S. District Court Judge William Alsup, who presides over PG&E's probation in federal court, tentatively concluded this week 
Quote, after a study of the materials provided by PG&E, the court tentatively finds that the single most recurring cause of the large 2017 and 2018 wildfires attributable to PG&E's equipment has been the susceptibility of PG&E's distribution lines to trees or limbs falling onto them during high wind events, end quote. Parties have until January 23rd to comment on the accuracy of the judge's tentative finding. It was quite the week for PG&E. We'll see what next week brings. On Thursday, Sears Holding Corporation announced that Eddie Lampert's ESL Investments was the winning bidder in the auction for the iconic retailer. Subject to bankruptcy court approval, ESL will acquire substantially all of the company's assets, including the, quote, go-forward stores on a going-concern basis for approximately $5.2 billion. Less than five hours later, the Sears Unsecured Creditors Committee filed a motion to seal portions of a not-yet-filed motion seeking standing to assert causes of action on behalf of the debtor's estates against Lampert, ESL Investments, and Kunal Kamlani, ASL's president and a director of holdings. The UCC opposes Sears' proposed sale of uh, their assets to ESL for, quote, myriad reasons that will be set forth fully before the court in the coming days, according to the sealing motion. The UCC argues that ESL's current bid to, quote, save the company is nothing but the, quote, final fulfillment of a years-long scheme to deprive Sears and its creditors of assets and its employees of jobs while lining Lampert's and ESL's own pockets. The committee seeks standing to pursue claims including the recharacterization of debt as equity or equitable subordination of the debt that ESL provided to Sears over the past several years. The UCC also requests standing to pursue fraudulent transfer claims related to Sears real estate transfers to Seritage, an entity controlled by Lampert and ESL. On Friday morning, ESL Investments filed an amended version of their Schedule 13D disclosing the asset purchase agreement. The agreement states that Transform Holdco will give offers of ongoing employment to approximately 45,000 Sears employees. The filing also states that Transform Holdco has entered into a new $1.3 billion ABL facility with Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Citigroup Global Markets Inc., and Royal Bank of Canada as lenders, an updated rollover commitment, an updated real estate commitment, and an updated equity commitment. The aggregate purchase price consists of $850 million in cash from the new ABL, a $1.3 billion credit bid, and the assumption of various liabilities and obligations. ESL's winning proposal still includes a release of a significant amount of claims against ESL, but certain claims, including actual or constructive fraudulent transfers and breaches of fiduciary duty or actions for illegal dividends with respect to the lands and or seritage transactions, have been carved out of the release. The debtor's sale hearing, which will be evidentiary and likely contested in nature, has been pushed to February 4th and February 6th, as announced during a hearing on Friday morning. The iHeartMedia cases saw big developments this week as the radio broadcasting giant moves towards confirmation of its Chapter 11 plan. Judge Marvin Isger oversaw the second day of the plan confirmation hearing on Thursday, during which debtors' counsel announced a major breakthrough. The debtors had reached a settlement with the legacy note holders. Wilmington Savings Fund Society, the legacy note's trustee, had been the only remaining objecting creditor. 
Under the resolution, the legacy notes will receive an additional 0.2% of reorganized iHeart equity under the plan, 0.1% coming from the 2021 notes, and 0.1% from the consenting sponsors Bain Capital and Thomas H. Lee Partners. The legacy notes parties have agreed to withdraw pending litigation in the bankruptcy cases and vote in favor of the plan, among other terms. Debtors' counsel from Kirkland and Ellis said that the debtors will spend the next few days revising the plan to reflect the new settlement. Under the previous version of the plan, the legacy note holders and 2021 note holders were classed together and would share pro rata in 5% of reorganized iHeart equity, as well as $200 million in certain new debt. The settlement announcement came on the heels of Judge Isger releasing his long-awaited opinion in the so-called Springing Lean Adversary Proceeding filed by the Legacy Notes trustee. Judge Isger ruled against the Legacy Notes trustee, which had argued that the Springing Lean and the Priority Guarantee Notes indenture had been triggered, thereby violating a clause in the Legacy Notes indenture that required iHeart to provide equal and rateable treatment to the Legacy Note holders. The ruling was a victory for iHeart, the senior creditors, and other proponents of the Chapter 11 plan. The next day of the confirmation hearing is scheduled for Tuesday, January 22nd. It was an extremely busy week at Reorg, and we'd be doing a disservice to only highlight the top three situations we're following. In other news, Reorg reported Tuesday that a group of Hornbeck offshore bondholders has informed the Louisiana-based OSV provider that holders of more than 50% of Five and seven-eighths unsecured 2020 notes have executed lockup agreements stating they will not participate in an exchange offer, according to sources. The group, represented by Milbank as legal counsel and Mollis as financial advisor, also holds more than 60% of the company's 5% senior 2021 notes. In a long-awaited opinion on the ultra-petroleum makehold dispute, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals vacated the bankruptcy court's order directing the debtors to pay almost $400 million in make-whole and post-petition interest payments. And in Parker Drilling, Saba Capital made an alternative transaction proposal, but provided no other details. In Puerto Rico's Title III cases, the PROMISA Oversight Board's Special Claims Committee and the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors filed a joint objection on Monday evening seeking the disallowance of more than $6 billion of claims based on Commonwealth General Obligation bonds issued in or after March of 2012. The objectors contend that such debt is invalid because it was issued in violation of the Puerto Rico Constitution's debt service limit, quote, when properly calculated, to include debt service on bonds issued by the Puerto Rico Public Buildings Authority, or PBA. The objecting parties assert that the PBA bonds should be included in the calculation of the debt service limit because the PBA structure is, quote, a sham. In a press conference Tuesday, Governor Ricardo Rosseo said that the Title III Court is the appropriate forum to analyze challenges to the legality of Commonwealth debt and indicated that his administration would abide by whatever determination the court makes regarding the legality of the debt. On Tuesday, the First Circuit Court of Appeals heard oral arguments regarding AMBAC's appeal of Judge Laura Taylor Swain's February 2018 opinion and order dismissing AMBAC's adversary proceeding against the Oversight Board and numerous other parties. In San Juan, Judge Swain concluded the evidentiary portion of the COFINA confirmation on Wednesday and closed the Thursday hearing on the matter by announcing she will take under advisement the issue of whether to confirm the COFINA plan of adjustment. Judge Swain also directed the parties to submit certain supplemental briefing by Monday, January 21st. 
separately. The court reserved decision on the Section 19.5 dispute between Cofina Trustee Bank of New York Mellon and White Box. Ambeck was previously a party to the dispute, but prior to oral argument on the matter, counsel for BNYM and Ambeck announced that the parties had reached a settlement. The terms were not disclosed. Other top red stories of the week were, number one, Shopco files Chapter 11 with plan contemplating sale toggle if plan sponsor cannot be secured. Existing secured lenders support process. Number two, rig contractors shrink fleets via sale or scrap as higher day rates remain elusive. And number three, Jimbury Ciaro indicates debtors have $85 million stocking horse credit bid for Janie and Jack business, Jimbury IP and e-commerce intend to conduct going out of business sales at Jimbery Crazy 8 stores. Now, filling in for Jim Holloway, here's Angelo again with the week ahead. A rare double appearance for me on the podcast. Must be a long weekend. Anyway, here's what's brewing this week. In-court activity is the focus all week, including the final two days of the iHeart Debtors confirmation hearing on Tuesday and Wednesday. On a busy first business day of the week, Tuesday also includes the adjourned disclosure statement hearing date for the Parker Drilling debtors, who last week received an alternative transaction proposal from shareholder Saba Capital. Staying in court on Tuesday, the first energy debtors are scheduled for another status conference after last week indicating that they are in the final stages of negotiations on a planned support agreement centered on a reorganization around their retail power assets. Also Tuesday, YPF and Repsol will be seeking dismissal of a $14 billion lawsuit commenced by the Maxis Energy Liquidating Trust during a hearing in Delaware before Judge Christopher Sanchi. Sales-related deadlines this week include a Shopco, the Wisconsin-based general merchandise retail chain, bid deadline and auction, and also the auction for Westmoreland, which has a stocking horse agreement with First Lien Creditors for a $390 million credit bid. Three bankruptcy court hearings round out the week on Thursday and Friday. On Thursday, the Toys debtors will seek confirmation of the PropCo 1 and Wayne Plans of Reorganization in Richmond. And in New York, Judge Shelley Chapman will preside over a pretrial conference ahead of Nine West's confirmation trial, which is scheduled to start on January 28th. Last week, the Nine West debtors noted that plant confirmation is expected to be, quote, hotly contested, end quote. In late-breaking news on Friday, former bankruptcy judge James Peck, who is mediating the Nine West plan dispute, submitted a report to the court noting that while global consensus was not reached, the mediation was, quote, moderately successful, end quote, and would result in an amended plan with terms that include increased settlement consideration and a resetting of agreed intercreditor allocations. Former Judge Peck also said these plan adjustments, while viewed by certain of the mediation parties as improvements, are, were not supported by all constituents. And therefore, the mediation was only moderately successful and fell short of his goals of full consensus. Finally, to end the week on Friday, the First Energy debtors will seek approval for the sale of their West Lorraine plant to stocking horse bidder Vermilion Power, a Starwood Energy affiliate for total consideration of about $152 million. Make sure to stay tuned. That's all for me. Thanks, Angelo. We'll be following all of that and more in the coming week. And now, as previewed, Karen sits down with Jason and Ray to discuss the dispute between McKinsey and J. Alex. Thanks, Connor. Today we have two members of Reorg's legal team with us, Jason Sanjana and Ray Nagiat 
talk about the ongoing dispute between McKinsey's Restructuring Advisory Group, that's McKinsey Recovery and Transformation Services, US LLC, sometimes referred to as RTS, and Jay Alex, the founder of restructuring advisor Alex Partners. Jay Alex, in his individual capacity, created Marbo Value Partners, which has purchased claims in various cases and challenged McKinsey's retention in those cases. Jay Alex also filed a lawsuit against various McKinsey entities. This fight between McKinsey RTS and Jay Alex has spanned several years at this point and impacted several restructurings that we cover, including Westmoreland Coal, Puerto Rico, and Alpha Natural Resources. It's a contentious dispute we've been keeping an eye on in light of the potential impact that it may have on bankruptcy advisor retentions generally and the serious consequences that may result for the parties involved. And uh, to give listeners a flavor of the arguments we're about to dig into, I'd like to read a few lines from a story written by Ray recently. This is from a recent article on the Westmoreland Coal case, in which Judge David Jones warned that the result may be a, quote, career ender for the losing side and pushed the parties as to whether they really wanted a judicial decision on the matter. He said the parties have, quote, seen the gun in the monkey's hand, and the parties would have to, quote, figure out if they're going to take the gun out of the monkey's hand. The matter has also received a significant amount of attention in the general press, mostly unflattering for McKinsey. Here's a recent headline from the New York Times. McKinsey advises Puerto Rico on debt. It may profit on the outcome. So these are some pretty dramatic and incendiary statements. Jason, can you start us off by introducing us to the players in this dispute? Thanks, Karen. It's great to be on the podcast. Long time, first time here. To your question, McKinsey Recovery and Transformation Services US LLC is the restructuring unit of major international management consulting firm McKinsey & Co., McKinsey, which on its website purports to have invented management consulting, was founded in 1926 by University of Chicago professor James O. McKinsey. Its turnaround and restructuring group, which we'll call RTS, was founded in 2010 and has played an increasingly prominent role in the restructuring market since then. Jay Alex, on the other hand, founded Alex Partners in the early 1980s. That firm was a trailblazer in the restructuring and turnaround advisory space. In the early 2000s, for example, Jay Alex led the charge in negotiating the terms of CRO retentions with the United States Trustee Program, and as a result became the namesake of the now famous Jay Alex Protocol. Jay Alex sold his controlling stake in Alex Partners in 2006, but still holds a 35% interest in the firm and still sits on Alex Partners' board. Of course, Alex Partners and McKinsey RTS are direct competitors, and it's worth emphasizing that Alex Partners itself has not been a party to any of J. Alex's actions against McKinsey. So what we're talking about today is J. Alex personally, not Alex Partners. To that end, J. Alex personally created a fund called Marbo Value Partners to buy bankruptcy claims and, according to recent deposition testimony, quote, help the bankruptcy system. So far, from what we've seen, it appears that Marbo has only appeared in cases to bring claims against McKinsey. So if you're involved in a case and see a notice of appearance from Marbo, look out. So how did the current challenges against McKinsey come about, and what challenges exactly are we talking about? Well, it's a pretty convoluted story. 
Stepping back a bit, Bankruptcy Rule 2014 says that a professional employed by a debtor or official committee must disclose their, quote, connections, end quote, with the debtor, creditor, or any party in interest. Generally, this has been read broadly, and debtors will prepare a long list of actual or potential parties in interest, and retained professionals will file statements disclosing if any of those entities are clients or otherwise connected to the professional. Of course, the devil is in the details. J. Alex, either personally or through the fund Marbo, has repeatedly argued that McKinsey failed to fully disclose its connections in Chapter 11 cases. In particular, J. Alex has pressed for disclosure of what he says are connections arising from investments by the McKinsey Investment Office, or MIO. According to Marbo, and I'm going to use Marbo and J. Alex interchangeably here, the MIO is a $25 billion internal investment arm that serves McKinsey personnel either via pensions or privately offered investment vehicles open to McKinsey partners, former partners, and their immediate family members. Marbo has found Department of Labor forms that it says prove that the MIO has undisclosed investments in funds that are closely connected to the cases in which McKinsey RTS is advising. Most notably, Marbo says that the MIO was invested in first lien lender White Box in the Alpha Natural Resources case, but McKinsey never disclosed this connection. According to Marbo, McKinsey and the MIO are not separate since information flows between the two, it says. And the MIO is, at least according to Marbo, really just investments of RTS's partners and employees. Marbo also notes that the MIO's board includes McKinsey's America's chief Vic Malhotra and formerly included John Garcia, president of RTS. McKinsey, on the other hand, argues vehemently that its disclosures have been sufficient and that Alex is attempting to undermine an Alex partner's competitor. According to McKinsey, the MIO is an affiliate that is operated separately and firewalled from the restructuring advising business. It also argues that J. Alex's own deposition shows that his allegations have been based on conjecture and speculation. More fundamentally, McKinsey says that its disclosures practices have been accepted and approved over many years and were negotiated in particular with the United States trustee for the SDNY in the Sun Edison case. In the Westmoreland case, at least, McKinsey says that the dispute isn't actually about any disclosure failures, but instead is really about whether Rule 2014 requires disclosure of connections throughout time, or whether disclosures can be limited to a specified look-back period. McKinsey has also argued that the rule applies to the applicant advisor itself, but not necessarily to its affiliates. Essentially, J. Alex and Marbo are alleging wholesale disclosure failures and intentional violations of reporting rules by McKinsey, and McKinsey says instead that this is all a personal vendetta based on conjecture and an overly zealous reading of what types of disclosures are actually required. It's worth mentioning, too, that McKinsey has repeatedly accused J. Alex and Marbo of misrepresenting facts and confusing the record. So when did this fight start? J. Alex formed Marbo in 2016, and the fund first appeared in Alpha Natural Resources, raising a series of challenges to the adequacy of McKinsey's disclosures in those cases. J. Alex, in a deposition last month, said that he formed the fund to buy a claim in the case and, quote, help the bankruptcy system become aware that there's not a level playing field going on in the bankruptcy restructuring industry, adding, I'm trying to help create a level playing field. McKinsey was ultimately forced to make additional disclosures confidentially to the Alpha Natural Resources judge, but the court was satisfied of their sufficiency, and those rulings on the matter were subsequently affirmed on appeal at the District Court and then at the Fourth Circuit, with the Fourth Circuit ruling this past September. However, as the appeals were pending, Marbo filed a motion to reopen the cases, and J. Alex also filed an entirely separate RICO action, both pointing to the Department of Labor forms we mentioned earlier that purportedly show MIO investments in white box. On top of all that, 
Marbo bought bond claims in the Westmoreland coal case and has raised a series of similar challenges there, saying that based on MIO investments, McKinsey likely has disqualifying connections to members of the ad hoc group in the cases. Marbo also recently warned that it will file for related relief against McKinsey in the Sun Edison case, and potentially other cases too. Marbo filed a notice of appearance in Sun Edison in 2016, but hasn't really been active in the case since then. However, it looks like something might be coming soon in Sun Edison, since Marbo's attorney in the Alpha Natural Resources and Westmoreland cases, former bankruptcy judge Stephen Rhodes, just filed for pro hoc admission in the case on behalf of Marbo. So this fight is spanning at least three courts with potentially more to come. Ray, turning it over to you, can you tell us more about how the fight developed in Alpha Natural Resources? Sure. One interesting aspect of the fight is how Marbo raised the disclosure issues in many aspects of the A&R case. The court had approved McKinsey's retention in September 2015. Several months later, after Marbo filed a motion, the court ordered McKinsey to provide certain additional disclosures. Marble also raised McKinsey disclosure issues in connection with the plan, arguing that the plan's release and exculpation provisions shouldn't apply to McKinsey. On that ground, Marble appealed the plan confirmation order. In October 2017, the district court dismissed Marbo's appeal, but Marbo continued its campaign on this issue, appealing to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals and ultimately losing there, as Jason noted earlier. Fast forward to July 2018. While the appeal was pending, Marbo asked the court to reopen the A&R bankruptcy cases based on newly discovered alleged disclosure violations. Marbo accused McKinsey of committing fraud, saying that McKinsey profited by over $50 million based on its undisclosed connection to Whitebox. And Whitebox was among the secured lenders that received assets under the plan. Just this week, McKinsey finally publicly disclosed certain information that it had previously provided in private to the court and certain interested parties during the case. Indeed, White Box was not listed in those materials. The parties continued filing papers in A&R regarding reopening the cases. Notably, in December 2018, the U.S. trustee filed a supplemental response to McKinsey's retention. In its filing, the U.S. asked the court to require McKinsey to disgorge its fees based on McKinsey's allegedly misleading representations and lack of candor. Although it's hard to know exactly at this time, in A&R it seems like the court's and the U.S. trustee's main concern is McKinsey's failure to disclose the investment in White Box, even after Marbo had raised the issue and the court had ordered private so-called in-camera disclosures. McKinsey, for its part, has adamantly denied Marbo's allegations. Earlier this month, the court ordered the reopening of the lead A&R case and said it would require a hearing on Marbo's standing to pursue its asserted claims. The court remarked that the allegations involved were the most serious he had ever seen. Marbo has certainly fanned the flames by maintaining that McKinsey committed fraud on the court. In one filing, Marbo says McKinsey engaged in, quote, much more extreme, unconscionable, and deplorable conduct than just non-disclosure or even perjury. Wow, so that's the story in Alpha Natural Resources from 2015 up to the present. And this fight has now spread to several different courts. That includes cases filed just in the last year. Is that right, Ray? Yep. In May 2018, Jay Alex himself filed a RICO lawsuit against McKinsey in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. In his complaint, Alex says various McKinsey entities and related individuals, quote, 
unlawfully schemed to harm Alex partners and engaged in, quote, willfully criminal conduct. According to Alex, without McKinsey's misconduct, Alex partners would have gotten at least 25% of the cases that McKinsey got. McKinsey has filed a motion to dismiss Alex's lawsuit. Briefing seems to be complete on that motion, but a hearing doesn't appear to have been set by the court yet. In November 2018, Marbo objected to McKinsey's retention in the Westmoreland cases, and McKinsey argued that Marbo's objection was merely the, quote, latest salvo in J. Alex's, quote, multi-year vendetta. In December, the court asked the U.S. trustee for a recommendation on how to proceed in light of Marbo's allegations. In the objection that it later filed, the U.S. trustee took issue with, among other things, McKinsey's failure to disclose the identity of a client that generates 17.5% of McKinsey's annual revenue. The court held multiple status conferences on the dispute. At the January 3rd conference, as Kara noted, the court warned that the outcome of the dispute would be a, quote, career ender for somebody. In Westmoreland, the judge, David Jones, ordered emergency depositions, which have shed some light on the party's substantive positions in the case, and also given the judge an opportunity to share his initial impressions of the party's positions. For example, after taking J. Alex's deposition, McKinsey has argued that Alex's allegations are based on speculation and conjecture. According to McKinsey, Alex's allegations really boil down to his absolutist view of the disclosure requirements, which McKinsey says courts haven't adopted. In particular, Alex and McKinsey appear to disagree on whether disclosures can be limited by a look-back period and how far the disclosure requirements extend to affiliates. Marble contends that McKinsey is trying to dodge a full accounting of its connections and that further discovery is needed. Judge Jones, for his part, appeared particularly concerned about J. Alex's testimony under oath that a former McKinsey practice leader told Alex himself that the disclosure rules don't really matter and can be avoided. Judge Jones was also incensed by a perceived lack of candor in the deposition of McKinsey practice leader Mark Hodgnacki, saying that such dodging and obfuscation would not be tolerated in future depositions. The judge even went so far as to threaten to require that future depositions be held in the courtroom on the record. So what happens next? Well, earlier this week, Judge Kevin Hunnikins, who presides over the A&R case after consulting with Judge David Jones, who oversees the Westmoreland cases, ordered the parties to judicial mediation. Judge Hunnikins urged the parties to be, quote, creative and to attempt to find a long-term solution that is comprehensive so their disputes don't continue to, quote, smolder. Any resolution resulting from the mediation would be subject to court approval, both in A&R and in Westmoreland. At the hearing, various case parties noted that they were amenable to mediation, but they warned that it was hard to see a compromise given the gravity of the allegations on both sides. So stepping back a bit, uh, Jason, earlier you mentioned Bankruptcy Rule 2014. Can you say more about the filings an advisor, that an advisor being paid out of the estate has to make with the bankruptcy court? What's the legal standard there? We discussed this a bit at the beginning, but in general, a professional who seeks to be employed by the bankruptcy estate has to meet requirements set out in Section 327 of the Bankruptcy Code, including that the professional does not hold or represent an interest adverse to the estate and that the professional is disinterested. To get at whether this rule can be satisfied, professionals are required to make disclosures under Bankruptcy Rule 2014, which, as we noted, is at the heart of the dispute between McKinsey and J. Alex. 
In theory, the firm is supposed to run a conflicts check against every party in interest, usually a single list prepared by the debtors, and disclose any connections to any part party on the list. In practice, these disclosures can be made in a series of certifications over time. To get into the details of the requirements, here's what Bankruptcy Rule 2014 says. An application to employ a professional must disclose, quote, to the best of the applicant's knowledge, all of the person's connections with the debtor, creditors, or any other party in interest, their respective attorneys and accountants, the United States trustee, or any person employed in the office of the United States trustee, end quote. This application also needs to be accompanied by a verified statement of the person to be employed, describing those connections. J. Alex has tended to take an absolute reading of this, while McKinsey maintains that Rule 2014 does not specify exactly how the required disclosures must be made. For example, in order to protect client confidentiality, McKinsey says it disclosed connections using descriptive categories instead of particular names, and insists that bankruptcy courts have accepted this practice for 15 years. Moving away from the specific rules about professional retention, it's worth emphasizing that intentionally false disclosures in bankruptcy court carry the potential for criminal liability. 18 U.S.C. 157 provides for fines or imprisonment of up to five years for false bankruptcy petitions, bankruptcy claims, or representations in bankruptcy court made by, quote, a person who, having devised or intending to devise a scheme or artifice to defraud and for the purpose of executing or concealing such a scheme or artifice or attempting to do so, makes the statement. That's why many official bankruptcy forms inc include rather draconian threatening language in very small print at the bottom. And failure to meet the applicable requirements could result in sanctions and fee disgorgement, among other things. But we should also point out that the retention application process is usually pretty routine and non-controversial. Sometimes the court or the U.S. trustee, which oversees the administration of bankruptcy cases as part of the Department of Justice, proposes modifications to retention terms. But retention issues usually don't snowball into big conflicts. That's one of the reasons this fight is so interesting. It's rare for a retention dispute to turn into a potential, as Judge Jones described, career ender. At the same time, the high-profile nature of this dispute appears to have U.S. trustee offices around the country taking a harder look at financial advisor retention applications, to the extent the UST staff isn't furloughed, that is. For example, in Synergy Pharmaceuticals in the SDNY, the U.S. trustee's office has been demanding additional disclosures and taking a hard look at Centerview's investment practices via its corporate affiliates. So one of the things that makes this fight so interesting and explosive is that it doesn't just involve allegations of violations of civil law, but also criminal law. Uh, Ray, can you walk us through what J. Alex has argued on this issue and what uh, Judge David Jones, the judge who presides over the Westmoreland Coal case, had said about this? Sure. As Jason noted, all verifications to a bankruptcy court carry with them the potential for criminal liability if they're intentionally false. That's a lot of what the judges here are talking about when they say someone might be violating criminal statutes. Essentially, either Alex is lying or McKinsey is lying. Going a step further even, in suing McKinsey under the RICO statute, which was originally used to go after the mob and other organized crime units, Alex accuses McKinsey of bankruptcy fraud, mail fraud, wire fraud, obstruction of justice, and witness tampering, among other things. Alex says McKinsey is a, quote, criminal enterprise. The Westmoreland Court has also noted that the dispute could implicate Title 18, which is the section of the United States Code dealing with crimes and criminal procedure. Judge Jones has made clear his view that neither side can be partially right, given the way the dispute is teed up. One side is right and the other side is wrong. 
If it turns out that McKinsey did what Alex says it did, then McKinsey could face criminal liability. And if it turns out that J. Alex made up the allegations, he might have perjured himself and in turn could face criminal liability. And now let's pivot a little bit and discuss the Puerto Rico restructuring. There are other parties in that case, not J. Alex, who have taken issue with McKinsey's disclosures in the Title III case. That's right. A September 2018 New York Times story reported that McKinsey has collected $50 million in advising the Oversight Board on Puerto Rico's fiscal plans and budgets, while at the same time holding at least $20 million of Puerto Rico bonds. Specifically, the Times report says that while McKinsey was advising the Oversight Board, McKinsey Partners controlled Compass Group LLC, which is a hedge fund that holds Puerto Rico bonds. Under the Commonwealth's current reorganization plan, those bonds would return more than double what McKinsey paid for them, the story says. The Oversight Board has now retained a law firm as special counsel to investigate McKinsey's holdings of Puerto Rico debt and potential conflicts of interest. The special counsel has said that a public report will be issued after the investigation. In a status update filed in late December, the special counsel said that the investigation would continue into January and that it would provide the court with an update before the January 30th omnibus hearing. Why do you think this dispute is important? You outlined how it's escalated, Ray, and you know could have serious consequences for the individuals and entities involved. Uh, but, but could this spat between McKinsey and J. Alex also have broader implications for the restructuring industry? Well, if J. Alex is correct that McKinsey was obligated to disclose more than it did, that could expand the scope of required disclosures by all professionals in bankruptcy cases, and not just financial advisors. In turn, those broadened disclosures could disqualify certain professionals, especially those that represent a wide range of non-bankruptcy clients from doing bankruptcy work. Also, companies that don't want their identities disclosed might be reluctant to engage firms that play in the bankruptcy space because their identities might have to be disclosed in a bankruptcy case. There are only a handful of large players in the space today. Last September, Alex Partners announced that it was acquiring Zolfo Cooper, which suggests that the bankruptcy advisory market may be consolidating. Depending on how things shake out, firms could be forced to consider limiting their practices only to bankruptcy or spinning off their bankruptcy practices or even exiting the bankruptcy industry altogether. Ultimately, the industry could look very different than it does today, perhaps with even fewer players. Or maybe additional players would join, seeing an opportunity to compete against larger firms, whose broader practices might disqualify them from bankruptcy gigs. Uh, So Jason and Ray, uh, what's next? What should we watch out for in the cases that you've discussed today, and where do you think this conflict could be heading? Well, it's already having an impact. As I mentioned, we've seen the U.S. Trustee's Office take a closer and closer look at financial advisor retentions, almost as if it was caught flat-footed by the media attention and judicial scrutiny the matter is facing now. As for the dispute itself, I don't think anyone expects mediation to be successful. However, there is a chance that both sides have backed themselves into a corner they don't want to be in. For example, if J. Alex's goal is simply to improve practices across the board, and at McKinsey in particular, that's, that seems within striking distance in a mediated outcome. If, however, the goal is to push McKinsey out of the space, that almost certainly will be a much broader fight. It really is not clear who ends up surviving a truly zero-sum fight like that. I think we're ultimately headed toward a showdown. Although Marble's playing ball with respect to the mediation, it's voiced doubt that the issues can be compromised given what's at stake. In light of the clear animosity between the sides and their unwillingness to back down thus far, I think a compromise is unlikely. 
Thank you so much, Jason and Ray, for speaking with us today. This is a fascinating dispute and one that we'll be sure to keep an eye on. Connor, back to you. Thanks for listening. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg podcasts on the site media page. If you're not a subscriber, you can find them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Connor Skelding, and this has been The Week in Reorg. <laughs>